0: So there are a lot of other alienating behaviors that have been discussed in literature. I mean, one of them is withdrawal of love. You know, the child's basically made to act like a little spy. And when the child goes back to see dad after a visit with mom, if the kid has not been a good loyal foot soldier, the dad is cool, withdrawn, doesn't engage, ignores the kid. So the message is being sent that you are not good enough. You failed.
1: We are in a mini-series on the hard but important topic of parental alienation. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Chris Polat Dio, a pediatrician with special interest in divorce, trauma, resilience, and a bible nerd. I created Little Pieces Club to help build resilience as families navigate separation. I'm happy to announce two new books. For people getting ready for marriage, especially young adults from divorce, we have Preparing for Marriage with Science and Scripture, And for Couples in Trouble, we have Marriage Rescue with Science and Scripture. Both are life-restoring, relationship-building, 40-day devotional meditations rooted in Little Pieces Club knowledge base. They are gentle, no-judgment zones. Just search for me on Amazon, that's Chris Polod, P-O-H-L-O-D, and you will find them. For the pod this week, we have a great guest, attorney Ashish Joshi. If you missed episode 54 with Dr. Alan Blockkey PhD, you might wanna go back and check it out for the psychological basis of parental alienation. This week, we focus on the legal aspects of alienation. Because we embrace both science and scripture at Little Pieces Club, I want to call our attention to a legal theme that we see in Genesis and then later in Deuteronomy and Numbers. Look to Numbers chapter 15, verses 22 through 31 for an example. Sin is categorized two ways. The first is unintentional sin, and the second is intentional. It worked this way. If an ancient Israelite sinned but didn't know it, but was made aware, they could atone with sacrifice and be forgiven. In contrast, intentional sustained sinning was punishable by casting people out of the safety and protection of community. Remember Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden. Community exile in the ancient world was a fate that brings about death. Sometimes parents unintentionally leak negativity from pain and incomplete grief, and they don't realize how badly it impacts their children. But once confronted with the long-term harms, many will change and soften. But others continue a pattern of sustained behavior that forces children to reject a parent. This severely impacts long-term well-being in adult relationships. Matthew recorded a stern warning that applies here. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Translation: I believe the spiritual stakes are quite high in alienation, and I'll expand on this in an upcoming episode. While this information informs parents, it may challenge you as well. Remember, we are doing this to help make sure children thrive after divorce. So just meditate on the scripture as we tune into the wisdom and practical advice from our guest today. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I am introducing today um, Ashish Joshi. Joshi, I apologize. Uh, He's a trial lawyer, uh, owner of the law firm uh, Joshi Attorneys and Counselors, and he practices and specializes in cases involving... Uh, the intersection of family law, behavioral science, and international law, and specifically parental alienation. Uh, We'll get into his background uh, very, very quickly, I think. And he's been admitted to practice law in Michigan, New York, DC, and India, and also cases across the United States. So with both domestic and international experience, I just can't wait to get into his knowledge base for you guys. But first, before we do that, Man, how did you get into this work? Uh, can you um, just talk a little bit about your story before we get into the to the information today? Sure, uh, well, first
0: of all, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Chris. So
1: thank you for the opportunity.
0: Of course. Um, I got into the field of alienation through criminal defense. I used to do cases uh, involving false allegations of abuse. Uh, where a parent was accused of either physical abuse or sexual abuse of a child. And upon doing proper investigation and reviewing the videos of forensic interviews of the children, it became clear that the kids were influenced or coached and alienated against the parent. And the allegations of abuse uh, actually had a different history. And uh, I learned more about uh, the science of alienation, the research involving parental alienation. And that's how I uh, came into the field. There came a time when I had to make a choice as to whether I was going to continue doing criminal defense work and family law, or I would uh, have had to specialize in one particular area. And I chose to do that. So over the past uh, several years, my practice has exclusively focused on cases involving parental alienation, uh, child psychological maltreatment, uh, different kinds of child abuse, coercive control, domestic violence, and international child abduction. And I have had the privilege of uh, litigating these cases Across the United States, and have been parts of teams in international jurisdictions as well. Wow,
1: that's uh, that's just. What What are some of the the key points that you've noticed? Um, you know that could compare and contrast the international versus domestic issues that you're dealing with. I'm sure you have several insights, um, and you're welcome to share those those here. But um, what do you see that's similar across cultures, and what's different?
0: Well, um, that's a great question and lots to unpack. In terms of uh, parental alienation, I would say the United States uh, is uh, somewhere in the middle. We don't really lag behind, but we are not in the vanguard either. We are not in the forefront of uh, addressing this situation. There are other countries like Canada, uh, Brazil, for example, who have done a far better job and they see severe parental alienation as child abuse. Some countries have made it into a crime or a criminal act as well to alienate a child. Uh, The European Code of Human Rights uh, has repeatedly come out and talked about how alienation uh, of a child against a parent is considered to be a violation of human rights. And uh, so the U.S., uh, Uh, If you talk about the U.S., uh, first of all, we have to understand that we don't have a federal system on family law like some jurisdictions or some countries do. So a court in New York uh, may view alienation quite differently from a court in Nebraska, let's say. But if you do a survey of uh, the cases all across the country, and uh, I have done that you ultimately can find some common denominators. And uh, these common denominators are the behaviors that the court look at. So the courts might use a different label uh, to address this phenomenon. Let's say the judge in New York uses the term parental alienation. A judge in Nebraska might use the term restrictive gatekeeping. Uh, Some other judge might call it pathogenic parenting. But at the end of the day, they are talking about well-researched and well-studied behaviors of a parent, which has been found to alienate a child or to turn the child against the other parent, essentially using the child as a weapon against the other parent. And while it, it is often seen in a situation involving divorce and separation, that's not always the case. You could have a situation involving alienation in an intact family, uh, but that's rarely seen because that you know, that doesn't really get into the court, so to speak.
1: I was going to ask you about that because as I walk with families before divorce, after divorce, um, and have experienced um, you know uh, some things, um, it just it seems likely to me that at least some of the foundational behaviors passive aggressiveness and otherwise, and leaking of negative feelings that this process could happen long before a divorce gets started. So I, it seems like you might kind of have picked up on that, but it's difficult, um, to kind of quantify because those families don't necessarily hit the system and you don't know how long that's been at play. Is that similar to what you've picked up on with some of the cases you've worked on?
0: Absolutely. And, uh... You know, for your audience, I would uh, like to recommend a couple of books, if I may. Please. Uh, So one of the great books uh, in this area is Divorce Poison by Dr. Richard Warshak. Uh, Another good book is The High Conflict Custody Battle by Amy Baker, uh, Michael Bone and Brian Ludmer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Amy Baker also, by the way, recently came out with a brand new book called uh, Parenting Under Fire. And these books are not just about alienation, but they give you a global perspective about uh, high conflict families, divorce, uh, the family dynamics that are involved in the situation, and what the children are unfortunately exposed to. And when talking about alienation, it would be helpful to realize that there is a massive amount of misinformation and what I call disinformation out there on the internet and social media about alienation. So you have to consider that. You have to look at uh, what's uh, good science and what's propaganda. And some of the craziest propaganda I have seen against parental alienation are arguments made by self-serving or self-titled feminist groups who attack the theory and uh, basically just call it a hoax. And they don't realize that the greatest damage they end up doing is uh, to their fellow citizens, other women, grandmas, mothers, sisters, aunts, who go through alienation and uh, face this propaganda of misinformation in court. And it takes enormous amount of energy, time, money to counter that. And precious time is wasted in these arguments about whether alienation exists or not.
1: Wow. yep. And uh, I mean, my my limited experience walking with families um, definitely kind of speaks to that. So you know, to the to the audience's point, if we have a lot of parents here, what what would you outline to them as sort of first steps? Um, and I, I do include like if they're looking for an attorney to help them, um, what what types of things would they be looking for in an initial interview um, to help them know that they're um, finding someone who is uh, very knowledgeable and or um, you know helpful in this regard? I would uh, suggest uh, asking questions. Uh, Research the
0: professionals you are planning to retain, whether it's an attorney, a therapist, an evaluator, whoever that is. Uh, Ask them about uh, what experience they've had in cases involving child alignment, parental alienation, estrangement, intimate partner violence. I would caution not to quickly jump to a conclusion of parental alienation, because I often see that uh, a parent uh, who is being rejected by a child or who is having some issues with the child uh, visitation goes on the internet, looks it up, finds the term parental alienation, and makes a quick diagnosis of his or her own situation, uh, saying, oh, this is it. I have parental alienation in my case. And... That causes harm because then you are basically uh, trying to fit a round peg into a square hole or the other way around, square peg into a round hole, you know, and and, uh, that causes a lot of heartache down the road. Uh, You are going down the path with a theory in search of facts. So it would be important to focus on the facts. Are you having trouble with your child? Is your child rejecting you as a parent? Is your child resisting contact with you? Are your texts or calls being unreturned? Is the child refusing to come to see you on visits? When the child does come to see you, has there been a dramatic downfall in the quality of the relationship? Because let's remember, alienation is not just about quantity of contact. It's also about quality of relationship. I've seen far too many cases where the kids do go on parenting time, but they come in with their headphones uh, over their ears, with the bags full of food and snacks. They just lock themselves in the room until it's time to go back to the other parent. And they refuse to engage, they refuse to have meals, they refuse to have a conversation. It's just basically checking a box so that the favorite parent doesn't get into trouble with the court. And the judges and some other professionals, including the lawyers, often just make a mistake of saying, well, you do see the kids, kids do come to see you, so it can't be alienation. And that's not what alienation is about. So it's about quantity and quality of relationship. So you decide that, okay, fine, we do have a problem, but that's just the first step then comes a critical step of determining why why is the child rejecting the parent or resisting contact with the parent has the parent been abusive has the parent has uh, demonstrated significantly deficient parenting style does the child have other complicated issues uh, such as autism asperger's any other disability Uh, Is one parent's child dramatically opposite to the other parent's parenting style? Are there issues involving alcoholism, neglect, and all of that? So you consider them and you basically uh, start building hypotheses as to what this could be and look for evidence to support or counter a particular hypothesis, If it's an evaluation in a forensic sense, you would try to disprove a hypothesis, but you need to do that factual investigation early on. And then when it becomes clear that the child is being influenced by the other parent, by let's say obtaining the text messages between the favorite parent and the child, or the child makes statements to someone that, well, mom told me that uh, you are an abusive father, or dad told me that you are a deadbeat mom, You know, that it's clear that the other parent is denigrating the other parent in front of the child. Then you start looking at a situation which could really be alienating behaviors. And if that's the case, then it is absolutely critical that you try to get early intervention. Because early intervention, Chris, solves lots of problems. Not every case of alienation involves a malicious parent who is out to just destroy the child and the other parent. I mean, sometimes people make bad judgment calls. They're in a conflict. They're caught in a really toxic situation. They make poor parenting decisions. And when they are provided with psychoeducational tools and literature, they realize that what they are doing is going to cause the child long-term negative consequences. And when some parents realize that, they change and they stop their behavior. So early intervention is the key.
1: So how would you, like, how do you visualize and how has it gone for clients that you've served? um, How does that early intervention take shape? What does it look like? What would a parent expect if that were kind of uh, put in place?
0: Well, early intervention could take form of, uh, let's say, psychoeducational counseling sessions where there is joint counseling for the mom and dad, sometimes involving children, sometimes not, depending on the case and ages of the children. And uh, the therapist or the counselor explains to them what is meant by alienation, estrangement, how to have healthy boundaries between parents and children. Let's say you have a situation where uh, one spouse cheated on another, and there's a lot of grief, a lot of anger, a lot of uh, frustration there. It still doesn't give you an excuse to expose young children to the situation and say, well, here's what your mom did. Here's what your dad did. He cheated on me, he slept with someone, He destroyed this family. He's the reason why we are not going to be together and all of those things because you still need to maintain boundaries with the kids. Uh, Of course, it's all very specific as to a family and age of the child, what's going on, Mm -hmm. but things like that. And you understand what is meant by those terms and you try to change the behavior. And if it doesn't stop, then you may need to take court intervention. You may need to go and ask the judge to put some restrictions in place, a different parenting time schedule, more parenting time for the parent who's being rejected, because that's what's counterintuitive in cases involving alienation. You know, many lawyers or even therapists, they make the mistake of uh, advocating for what is often called a cooling-off period. The child's rejecting a parent, the child's resisting contact, Let's give the child some room here. Let's cut down the parenting time for the parent who's being rejected. And the child's gonna come along and things gonna be hunky-dory in the near future. Well, if it's a case of alienation, that's the last thing you should be doing because uh, it's only going to entrench the distortions. It's only going to entrench alienation. The more time that goes by, that the child doesn't see the rejected parent, the worse the resistance gets. And what you should be doing is to get more time for the rejected parent and the child so that the child has the opportunity to experience the parent and the parenting and the time with the parent to counter the propaganda of misinformation, the influence, the denigration, done by the other parent. Yeah. So and- for example, if they're, and I'm just using the gender here fluidly, yep. males alienate, females alienate. I have seen cases after cases where fathers have been the alienators, and I've seen cases after cases where mothers have been alienators. I have seen cases where third parties, grandma, grandpa, aunts or uncles have been the primary alienators, and the actual parent is only alienate, alienating by proxy, so to speak. So, gender doesn't really matter. But to give you an example, if uh, mom tells a kid and continues to denigrate the father and continues to just uh, poison the well, so to speak, the more time that the child has with the father to experience the father's parenting, to experience the father's uh, love, nurturing, all the things that the dad provides the kid for himself or herself, the better off the kid's going to be in terms of resilience. If mom continues to say dad's mean, dad's abusive, dads has anger issues, but the kid doesn't see any of that in all the time that's being spent with the dad, now that's going to send a message that there's something going on here. I mean, sometimes it leads to you know cognitive dissonance in the child, through the child's unable to match the, what has been told or what the child believes compared to the actual experience that the child's having. And you often see the kids struggle with the loyalty bind, especially if they are young. And they will blurt out sometimes things like, well, uh, this is not what I expected, but, uh, oh, yeah, I thought you were going to do this or you were going to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's when it's also important to... Think about getting a good counselor involved for early intervention.
1: Yeah, it, it's. I was reading some of your articles, and one particular one um, uh, point that you made stuck uh, stuck out, which is uh, you, you titled the the black counterintuitive feature of abused children: they want a relationship with the abuser, and that um, that makes a lot of sense to me. But I just hadn't seen it in black and white until you. I, I read your your work, and it seems to me that that's a really key feature in a lot of this. Um, and then, how does how have you seen that play out, in especially in the courts? Do they listen to that? Um, how has that played out in this dynamic?
0: There is significant research that tells us about uh, abused children. And researchers have found that children who have been found to have been abused by protective services, law enforcement, or other investigations, they actually want contact with their abusive parents. So a child, for example, who has been repeatedly physically beaten, assaulted, maltreated by, let's say, an alcoholic dad, will make excuses for the father saying, well, he didn't really mean to do that. I asked for it. Uh, he, I, I just made him angry. It's my fault. I do want to see him. And they will try to make excuses for that behavior. They will try to put the blame on themselves. They will lie about uh, the abuse. They will make every effort in the book to continue to contact the parent, despite being abused, alienation, at least severe alienation cases, I'm not talking about mild, but severe. The child will want absolutely no contact with the parent who's being rejected. They never want to see that parent again, mom or dad. They just don't want any contact, no texting, no calls. I just don't want to see you. You are just dead to me. And I want no contact whatsoever. And when you try to ask or try to investigate as to what did that parent do to deserve this level of rejection, it doesn't make sense. You get answers like, well, he or she is just mean. They don't care for me. He or she was never around. Uh, Or they use borrowed terms or phrases like, he's a deadbeat dad. Mom's a slut or whatnot. So these are labels that are put on people, but there are no facts to support that. So you'd find a child rejecting Let's say a dad by saying he's a deadbeat father, he was never around, he doesn't care for us. And this is the key, us. It's not me, it's us as a tribe. The other parent, the siblings and the child form a sort of a tribe and put the parent outside of the tribe. And when you look at the evidence, You see the father being an involved parent who has uh, been a good dad, who has been very much involved in the child's life. You see the evidence of the dad coaching, let's say, little league soccer teams, baseball teams, involved parenting in the school, vacations, picnics, uh, birthday parties, all of it. And it just, it's all washed away. And when you try to show that evidence to the kid and say, what are you talking about? Look at dad here coaching your team. Oh, he was faking it. He, wa- he wasn't really there. Look at all these wonderful pictures where you are so happy with your dad or happy with your mom. You're engaging, you're hugging them. Oh, no, that was all fake. So you see a dramatic uh, rejection. And in some severe cases, it's almost like you're talking to little zombies. And the dark side of this uh, is the study that has been done or several studies which show the self-internalization of alienation and the rejection of the parent and how kids start engaging in some pathological behaviors as well. You know, some kids uh, start cutting themselves, some develop eating disorders, some engage in uh, promiscuous sexual behavior, violence at school and whatnot. Doesn't, doesn't mean that happens in every case, but there have been... Uh, Clear studies done to show that with childhood effects, there are really controversial divorce, high conflict divorce, alienation, child abuse could really take the toll on the kids' lives.
1: And, you know, I'm going to go back to the international um, question because I did uh, recently review some information about, oh, I, I heard a podcast from a person from Dubai, and mm-hmm. they seem to have a really proactive system. Where they kind of work with families long before it gets to, um, or I guess their divorce rate is is extremely low, and I was wondering if you had any experience there. But um, even like, what what would be your your sense of how to prevent all this? I mean, I know we we talked about you know in in the case of a divorce and and early intervention, but um, do you have sen- some senses on? How some of this can be prevented, and then the question is: during the divorce itself, is there anything that can be put in place in a divorce agreement that parents could be looking for that could be used later uh, to help this system? Like, in other words, give a give the the divorce party a a, um, a heads up about alienation early. Um, is that possible in in this type of a scenario? It certainly is. So to back up a little, Mm -hmm. uh, in 2021, I
0: published a book called Litigating Parental Alienation. And it's meant for lawyers and uh, people who are representing themselves or are in litigation. It's not jurisdiction specifics. It doesn't matter whether you are in New York or California or Florida. It's a about general principles when dedicating a case involving alienation in family court. And there's an entire chapter in that book about international issues on parental alienation. How uh, jurisdictions such as Brazil or India or UK handles alienation and what they have done about it. But it basically boils down to two simple things. Number one, as we said earlier, early earlier intervention. You have to catch these cases early on. You have to address the resist, refuse dynamics or alienating behaviors as early as possible. The longer it goes, the more difficult it becomes to put it all back together. And the second key thing is enforcement of court orders. If the bad behavior goes unchecked, if the bad behavior is not held accountable, if uh, court orders are not enforced, it becomes meaningless. There is no point in doing anything then. So these two things have to be kept in mind in order to make a real difference. And I've seen judges who are very proactive and The first violation of parenting time order, the judge will often call the parties and the lawyers, uh, and there's a hearing, and the court makes it clear that the court is not going to tolerate violation of court orders. We are not going to let minor children decide whether or not they are going to abide by the parenting time orders. We are not going to let kids be in the driving seat, but the orders have to be followed. And if there is a violation of court-ordered parenting time for the mom, let's say, and dad basically says, well, I can't make the kid go, what am I supposed to do? I think judges look at them and say, well, you make your kid go to the school, don't you? You make your kid go to the dentist. You make the kid go to a medical exam if there needs to be one. And by the same token you should be able to make them go to see the other parent. And I'm going to order make-up parenting time for the time that is missed by the parent. And if this happens again and again, maybe we are looking to change custody because maybe the other parent would be able to make the kid go to see you. And that parent should be the primary custodial. So a lot of things can be done by setting the tone right in the first place. But if the court basically just wrings its hands and say, well, you can't really force the kids to go, let's see what's going on, let's order an investigation, and in the meantime, let's just suspend the time, or let's leave it to the child to decide if and when the child wants to see the parent. I mean, all of those things are just a slippery slope to disaster. Of course, we are not talking about cases where abuse is involved, of course. where there is a we had whether there's domestic violence, child abuse, there's child protective services investigation where the abuse has been founded, substantiated. Those are different cases because then you need to think about well, the first order of the business is to make sure the child is safe. And you need to put the protective safeguards. But other than that, it's, it needs to be in, the orders need to be enforced. There's no way around it.
1: Yeah. So like in a situation where, um, a parent has actually been appropriately limited their time, but say, you know, there's a uh, weekly phone calls or even every other day phone calls with the alienating parent, um, that are beyond the scope of the, uh, visitation that, that, that seems to be, uh, that would be sort of, um, uh, undermining, uh, that parenting time, especially if those phone calls went for a long time, would you say? Cause there, I, the, be, with, um, you know, smartphones and technology and that kind of thing, it seems like there's a, a big chance that that's going to be either used, uh, inadvertently or intentionally, um, to kind of subvert some of these, um, parental, um, uh, visitation orders. Is that, would that be a kind of an appropriate way to look at that?
0: Yes. And I must say that technology has been a boon and a bane at the same time, you know, with, with technology, it's easier to be in touch. It's easier to have video calls, FaceTime, text messages to stay in touch with the child. But at the same time, you know, I have seen cases after cases where, The favorite parent uh, or the alienating parent repeatedly interferes on the parenting time of the other parent. You see nonstop text messages being sent by the favorite parent, phone calls, and uh, suggestive questions such as, are you safe? Are you okay? Is mom or dad uh, hurting you? Call 911 if you're unsafe sending the police to do well check or well care visits you know the message constantly is uh, being sent to the kid that there's something unsafe about the other parent and uh, it's non-stop interference of the on the parenting time of the other parent so you also see those behaviors and th- thankfully with technology sometimes it's a Possible to get proofs of this. So I've had cases where you get the text messages and you you are able to show to the court that in the span of 24 hours, the favored parent sent, let's say, 50 text messages to the child. Out of those 50, 35 were asking the same question in different ways about whether a child was feeling safe. And it's nonstop interference, it's non-stop suggestible questions, which is really causing the child to engage in some sort of tribal warfare here. And it creates an enormous pressure on the kid. So there are a lot of other alienating behaviors that have been discussed in literature. I mean, one of them is withdrawal of love. So let's say dad is alienating when the child goes to see the mom, dad continues to send this text to the child about mom being unsafe, is mom drinking? Who else is at the house? Is mom's boyfriend around? Can you uh, look at mom's computer to see what emails she has sent out? Are there, is there marijuana in the house? Is there any alcohol in the cupboards? You know, the child's basically made to act like a little spy. And when the child goes back to see dad after a visit with mom, if the kid has not been a good, loyal foot soldier, the dad is cool, withdrawn, doesn't engage, ignores the kid. So the message is being sent that you are not good enough. You failed. You are not loyal. And often children caught in that bind will start to do anything that will earn them that love, will start to earn them that brownie loyalty points. And if that means to turn against the other parent, so be it. That is not to say that every child reacts in the same manner because children are different. And you often see, even in the same family, how alienating behaviors uh, affect the children. I mean, the older child, for example, could be far more... uh, under influence on the younger child or vice versa it's not like one size fits all here
1: and and how would you um like you mentioned uh the technology even though it's kind of a double edged sword it does help you provide evidence how is evidence gathered in these cases um from the legal aspect of things is it mainly interviews with with experts you know family friends discuss how you you would uh, lay out the evidence in cases like these?
0: It's a combination of different uh, factors and depending on the situation. If the phones are, if the devices are available, then I've seen the parents gather the text messages from the device. You can just plug the phone into a computer and using a software extract all the text messages. Children, minor children's phones are owned by the parents. So a parent has a right to look at the device of a minor child to protect the child. I mean, you want to make sure your kid's not on the Internet doing some nasty things and is safe. So if you are a parent, you have every right to look at the phone and see what the kid's doing. Sometimes parents take screenshots of this text message sent by the other parent to the child. On other occasions, we are able to get phone records subpoenaed and the device is turned over to forensic examiners who can extract all the videos or pictures or text messages from the device. Uh, So there are various ways, and uh, the proofs, uh, once they're obtained, you can use them in evidence in court, or you can show them to a clinical evaluator who is undertaking, let's say, a child custody evaluation as to what's going on.
1: Would it be appropriate for a parent, like if a child were to say something in particular... For them to keep a log and this would be sort of court of of course outside of the awareness of the child but you mentioned a few things like the, the child said you know you're a deadbeat dad or something like mm-hmm. that that they could write that down as a quote um and on a timeline would that be helpful uh in a court setting it would be
0: um but it, i say that with uh, some caution
1: mm-hmm. i mean
0: ideally it would be more helpful if there was a witness to this behavior uh either a neighbor or a friend or another family member who was there when the child blurts out this uh, painful statements about the parent who is there to witness it or somehow it's caught from the camera you know in this day and age there are home security cameras and i often see videos of children treating the parent in a horrible way a child who is The most polite kid in the school gets straight A's, very respectful, treats the mom in the most despicable manner, or the dad saying hateful things that are just shocking, or someone could witness it. The journal, of course, could be helpful as well, but it's often seen as self-serving. And the other issue that sometimes arises is that you don't want the judge to feel or believe that your client was more interested in collecting evidence than parenting the child. That where the child was with the parent. The parent was more focused on collecting evidence and helping the litigation case, but was not really focused on spending quality time with the child. So you have to use good judgment. I mean, one thing that uh, could be done is to record or somehow memorialize the incident, in somewhat contemporaneous manner. So sending a message to the other parents saying, little Johnny was very inappropriate today. He made this uh, statements. He was very angry. And -and so-and-so was here to witness it. And I would like to talk about this with you as a parent to another parent. Sure, Let's engage in co-parenting. Let's talk about this with a counselor or the school counselor or a therapist. And let's see what the issue is. And Constantly if the other parent refuses to co-parent, well, that's uh, good evidence for the court as well then. Then yep. uh, you try to do the right thing and uh, it didn't go anywhere.
1: And there are co-parenting apps that are a couple of them out there that uh, that would certainly be um, a great you know, methodology to um, uh, to use. So I, I really appreciate that um, suggestion. Now, in the interest of time, I have one question that I want. It's going to uh, shift us a little bit, but it's more... Um, for people like me or professionals that are working with um, children and families in these situations. And that is the fact that um, the, this abuse question when it comes to parental alienation comes up. And you know myself as a pediatrician, parents that are you know teachers out there and the, and other friends and family with the mandated reporting statutes that are out there. what what advice would you give someone like me or, uh, people listening that have that mandated reporter status when it comes to parental alienation. And I say that, that in one state, I actually tried to make a report and they said, oh, this is taken care of by the courts. We don't take, like uh, the Children Family Services, um, we don't take reports of of parental alienation. That's handled by the courts. So what's been your experience with this, given this Kind of quasi, you know, definitely it's abuse, but when it comes from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, really that abuse does not apparently in all cases take that mandated reporter or activate that mandated reporter. What's been your experience in this realm?
0: Uh, Well, my experience has been somewhat uh, similar to what you described. Uh, The term parental alienation is not uh, properly understood. And the Child Protective Services workers, call it uh, DSS, DHS, whatever the agency is, they are often trained well in the areas of physical abuse, sexual abuse, but they're not that trained well in the area of emotional or psychological maltreatment. So you probably would not get the same traction that you would expect to get in a situation where you have the child with bruises, let's say, or other evidence. Now, that being said, uh, every jurisdiction has uh, its own mandating reporting requirement. So you have to read the statute or the ordinance clearly. And if it requires you to report on a suspicion of child abuse, then you look at the definition of child abuse. And overwhelming majority of jurisdictions do have some sort of emotional abuse as part of the component. know it's very interesting that... Uh, the premier organization called EPSAC, American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children, EPSAC, they have a handbook on child maltreatment. And there's an entire chapter on child psychological maltreatment. And that describes some of the behaviors that are considered to be emotional abuse of a child. When you dig deeper and you compare these behaviors to the alienating behaviors, as they have been described in literature, they are remarkably similar. It's the same behavior we are talking about, terrorizing a child, spurning, withdrawal of love, you know, hurting a thing or a person that the child loves or is close to. So in, instead of uh, saying, for example, I suspect this child is being alienated, you could describe the behaviors of the other parent that are causing harmful effects on the child what is it that the alienating parent is doing that is causing significant harm to the child's well-being and what signs of distress is the child showing and those kind of uh, complaints or proper uh, l- properly laid out concerns might get a social worker to act rather than just a label of parental alienation.
1: Very good. I, I really appreciate your time. I know we're up against a bit of a, a stop. So I just want to uh, give you a moment to just uh, let, uh, give me any closing comments or let the audience know any kind of summary comments that you want to make. And uh, just want to thank you uh, for the time that you've given us uh, today.
0: Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, this has been a pleasure. Somewhat of a sad topic, no doubt. But still, the only thing I would tell your audience is to be careful about where they source their information from. Websites, uh, internet uh, has a lot of material about alienation. You have to be judicious about where you are getting your information from. There are good articles which are peer-reviewed, published by, let's say, American Psychological Association in their journals, the American Bar Association in their journals. The AFCC as an organization has a journal which also contains lots of materials as well and there's lots of literature out there on alienation anti-alienation and whatnot but at the end of the day what you are what you should be concerned about and what you should pay attention to are the behaviors of the parent whether the behavior is causing harm to the child in the child's relationship with the other parent and if so How can you contain and stop that behavior? That's ultimately what brings it to the court's attention. And I have seen judge after judge basically just saying, I'm not interested in highfalutin science. I'm not interested in a battle of experts. My job here is not to decide whether a theory of parental alienation is absolutely scientific and whatnot. My job here is to protect the child. I'm going to ensure that this child has a decent, normal, healthy relationship with each of its parents. And unless there are signs of abuse or evidence of other maltreatment, the child has a right to be with both parents. And we are going to intervene and do whatever is necessary. And that's when it starts
1: making a difference. That's great. I appreciate that perspective quite a bit. Well, thank you. Um, It's been wonderful spending time with you. And I just wish you the best in all the great work that you're doing. Have a great uh, day. Thank you, Chris. I hope you gained some great knowledge from today's podcast. Now, as I do every week, I will close us in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for our brother Ashish Joshi. He is doing such amazing work for the children of your kingdom, Lord, and so many others. I just pray your protection over him uh, so that he can continue to do his good work and that he continues to grow in wisdom and practical advice uh, for all of those that he serves. And for those listening, Lord, I just pray that this information is challenging and also encouraging and inspiring so that they can either realize the circumstances that they're in and have now uh, more practical steps to take action, uh, to protect themselves, to protect their children, of course, um, and to mitigate the effects of parental alienation. Please walk with each person, Lord, and make your presence known to them that you are a kind, safe, but fierce force for good in the lives of all. We acknowledge, Lord, that this parental alienation evil is not anything that you've intentioned for this world, and it is a result of the war that is going on with evil and light in the lives of both believers and unbelievers. For the parents, Lord, who are alienating their children from the other parent, we just pray that you are able to touch their souls so they can realize what's going on, and become those unintentional sinners that are able to turn around and make things right. And for the intentional sinners, we also pray that they will eventually be uh, forgiven and um, find you, Lord, and that they can rely on you and ask for your presence, Lord. And just be with us in this week. Um, Let this information saturate our hearts and minds as we move forward and try to mitigate um, these terrible effects of parental alienation um, so that children can grow up and rely on the fact that they can have strong relationships um, and learn from you and live out the greatest blessings of loving you, loving themselves and others and the created world. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us on our podcast, and I hope to have the next one out uh, soon. Until then, be blessed.